I did. I told the one thing. I still, I'm so excited. Why did you do that to me? Oh, because I wanted to know one time what it felt like. Okay. I didn't want to be the boop, boop, boop guy only. I have, I have range. I'm a, I'm a human. If you cut me, do I not bleed? Something, something. Um, hey guys, how are you? It's only been a week, uh, for you, but for us, it's been longer. It's been a while. It's been a, it's it's been a, while. Been a while. Oh, we both went there. Good, good. That old Midwestern stain <laughs> reference coming out, guys. Hi. How y'all doing? Um, so, we're here. We're here, and we're going to talk about imperialism. And you're going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, guys. You you finished that book. You're we done with it. We did the whole thing. We did, did a whole the gist. whole We were done. Thing. Lennon ended it. Why must you, why must yeah, you tag on? Yeah, we already on? spoiled this, by the way. Yeah, we already said exactly what we were doing. I don't yeah, know why I'm acting. So but maybe this is your first episode. Maybe you're a wild, <laughs> insane person, and you're coming here because you heard, hey, uh, Brett and Allison were on that show. I should go listen to their stuff. And you listen to us in a weird reverse order. Yeah. Spoiler alert for the thing we just spent the last hour or so doing. Spoiler alert. Uh, it was, that was, that was, that was wild. That was not normal. They, they, they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have come on our silly show. They don't know what they're doing. Um, but that being said, as is tradition, we are going to uh, uh, not finish a book when we're supposed to finish a book, and we're going to yeah. tack on an additional chapter yeah. by uh, a super smart guy who definitely knew what he was talking about. Yeah, we decided that you know, like Marx had, had added on one too many chapters, and we decided Lenin added on one too many chapters because he was real pissed at Kautsky on state and revolution. So super pissed at Kautsky. So when he didn't add on one too many chapters on his editing masterpiece, Imperialism, we decided to add on one too many chapters. Also, also, uh, and I, I've realized that we shouldn't. And again, Brett now. House did a great job of it on Red Menace. I desperately at some point want to do uh, left communism and infantile disorder on this show mm. because from what I've been reading recently of it, I, and it's a bold statement, I think it may be the best Kautsky dunking of Lenin's career. Ooh, that is a I think bold it might statement. be I, it might be his his Mona Lisa of Kautsky dunking. My Maybe within that God, it that is, is a bold solid. statement. If for nothing else in the Kautsky dunks, I think that we can is get that climbing in an Everest to, to throw that mm, dunk down. That it's is a worth bold it. It's good, statement. and he, he's there, and he wow, backs up downtown. It's good times. All right. Um. Well, so hey. We're doing an episode of this show after a couple weeks, and that means there's corrections, because we're dum-dums, and we say stupid hey, stuff. Yay, dum-dum. Yay, dum-dum. So, hey, Rain, uh, we see you out there, um, uh, because you're the only one that takes the time to correct us on your stuff, and that's why we, we're going to hire you as soon as we make... We're not making money off this. Who are we kidding? This is, we're all, we're all going to die poor in this. But that's not the, that's not the point. Rain pointed out... Um, then apparently we were talking about uh, the the concentration camps that we threw Japanese uh, American citizens in during World War II, and we just decided to call those internment camps. Yeah. Um, which is, I'm going to blame 30 plus years of fun American history school indoctrination yeah. into making me think that's the right word for it. They're not. They're concentration camps, and calling yeah. them anything different is kind of buying into the uh, PR spin that America tries to put on that nonsense that we pulled. And uh, so I don't know how we missed that one, but we did, and we are sorry, because they're concentration camps, and especially in this uh, this day and age, to call them anything other than that, and to point them out for anything other than what mm-hmm. they are, or try to gloss over them uh, is is not helpful and, if anything, is actively detrimental to the cause. So I apologize uh, because I'm going to go ahead and assume it was my fault. I did not want to go back and re-listen to it because that, that might would, be my fault. I'm going to say it's my fault. I'm going to take that. I'm going to mm-hmm. fall on that sword um, and wait till next week when Rain corrects me on which of us it actually was. Um... And all the fun that- I'm I'm going to jump on the sword behind Nathan because it probably was my Be- fault. Meanwhile, we're move on. Meanwhile, we're moving into um the Pan-Africanists 
Uh, yeah. So get ready with those correction fingers, guys. Because holy shit, we didn't even know where Walter Rodney was born a couple minutes ago. We fucked that one up. We fucked it up from the get go. All right. That's how bad have, this has been. I have notes and I just read the wrong line. Uh huh. Confidently. Yeah. I confidently reread the wrong line. Confidently. Like, no, I was wrong. And double down on it when I called him on it. Double down. So we're completely re recording. Completely scrapping that one. Bob. That was all a warm up to do the podcast with the real podcast people, and now we're back to our silly nonsense. That's right. So, Dr. Walter Rodney uh, was born in Guyana. Yes! Not Trinidad. Not Trinidad. Definitely not Trinidad. Definitely not Trinidad. He was born in Guyana, uh, where he also died. Um, He uh, published this work in 1972 called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. is his seminal work. Um, Two years before that, of course, was the Black Power Rebellion in Trinidad, which is probably where I got a little mixed up. Mm. Trinidad, of course, is very, very close to Guyana, so that mattered a little bit to to Dr. Walter Rodney. I subtly start Googling things because I don't know maps. (laughs) Trinidad's an island up north. Guyana is a a region of South America just to the east of Venezuela, and uh, Trinidad is north of that and in very elongated archipelago. You are correct. I, 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 I backed this up. I've seen a map. He's right, guys. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, we're going to jump in. This is uh, fat, Chapter 5, uh, Part 2, Section B, which yeah. sounds very notesy. No, it sounds very Marxy is what it sounds like. This is, very cap- this is a very throwback to Capital where there are sections upon subsections, and my brain got hurt. But, uh, yeah, this- well, he's not Dr. Walter Rodney for no reason. Also, he can, he can write some extensive Before things. we get in here, because I feel like we probably shouted it out the first time. Uh, you should probably get your phone out because I definitely didn't reply to this tweet. You did. Mm. Um, but there, we're doing this particular sub... Ep- this seems oh, like a very yes. random... Why are you just doing this one subsection of this one episode? And there was uh, an exchange on Twitter between David and, and another person that we're going to find out right here. It is Dan Boucher. There we go. There we go. Um, uh, who had said that this, I mean, this really felt so dead on, uh, especially to imperialism and everything else, that he was, he was going to, you know, tw- wanted to tweet it out, you know, tweet story the thing out, but it's like seven pages that would be long. And it's like, well, hey, we do this silly thing, and this kind of makes like a really easy thing for us to throw in there. You want us yeah. to do it? And we were gracious enough to say, yeah, go ahead, go for it. Yeah. So that's why we're doing this, and, and thank you, Dan, for pointing and, that out. And we were originally going to do a mini madness, because, I mean, why take away from anything Dr. Walter Rodney said? Yes. And, uh, and also, you know, it's short, but it's probably too long for a mini madness, so we're going to do it like kind of like we did the Gotha program. Yeah, little, yeah, yeah. Little own episode of it. So we're going to jump into uh, Chapter 5, Part 2, Section B, the example of Unilever as a major beneficiary of African exploitation. For people not familiar with Unilever, it's a very, very large oh. conglomerate, just like we've Don't. been looking at. So you've got Nor Frozen mm. Foods, K-N-O-R-R, you've got Dove Soap, you've got just about, I mean, name a brand, there's a good chance it's Unilever. And it's going to come... It, Especially not, if it's soap and it's not Procter & Gamble, it's probably Unilever. And we're going to get to it under here because there's yeah. so much... It, Dr. Rodney does it better than I'm going to, so yes. I'm not even going yeah. to so we're gonna, now, we're gonna, yeah. we're going to jump in Jump here. right in and let him do the talking. So Dr. Rodney starts, just as it was necessary to follow African surplus through the channels of exploitation, such as banks and mining companies, so the non-monetary contribution from which Africa made to European capitalism can also be accurately traced by following the careers of the said companies. We offer below a brief outline of the relevant features of the development of a single firm, that of Unilever, in relationship to its exploitation of African resources and people. 
1885, while Africa was being carved up at the conference table, one William H. Lever started making soap on the Mary side near Liverpool in England. He called his soap Sunlight. In the swamps where his factory stood, the township of Port Sunlight grew up. Within the 10 years, and I believe that's a dish soap, by the way, Sunlight. Uh, in the 10 years, well, now I lost it. There we go. <laughs> Ten years, the firm of Lever was selling 40,000 tons of soap per year in England alone and was building an export business and factories in other parts of Europe, America, and the British colonies. Yep. Then came Life Buoy Lux. Vim, and with another 10 years, Lever... The fact that Vim was not immediately followed by Vigor makes me upset because that's the only other time I've ever seen that word written. And it's you, it's upsetting. You, sir, clearly have not had to program in Linux. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No. Uh, Lever was selling 60,000 tons of soap in Britain, and in addition had factories producing and selling in Canada, the USA, South Africa, Switzerland, Germany, and Belgium. Good. However, soap did not grow in any of those countries. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna lie, guys. I, I kind of hope that was funny because I'm like, soap doesn't grow anywhere. Where is the soap tree, good sir? But we get into it. Yeah, the basic item in its manufacture was sterin, obtained from oils and fats. If there's anything I learned from Fight Club, that's how you make soap. Yeah. Apart from animal tallow and whale oil, the desirable raw materials all came from the tropics, namely palm oil, palm kernel oil, groundnut oil, and copra. West Africa happened to be the world's great palm produce zone and was a major grower of groundnuts. And uh, so, I mean, obviously something you'll notice today is palm oil is still a huge, huge imperialist and uh, environmental destruction issue yep. that people completely under-recognize. Yep. Uh, in 1887, the Austrian firm of Schicht mm. was near... The, was Which later was later incorporated in Unilever. They all just, no, they all just end up in Unilever. I don't have to pronounce Austrian, goddammit. Uh, built the first palm kernel crushing mill in Austria. Seems like a hyper-specific thing to build, but go, sure does. go yeah. off, go off Schicht. Uh, supplied with raw materials by a Liverpool firm in, of oil merchants. This was not simply coincidence, but part of the logic of imperialism and the opening up as Africa as the raw material reservoir of Europe. As early as 1902, Lever sent out his own explorers to Africa, and they came with the decision that the Congo would be the most likely place to get palm produce because the Belgian government was willing to offer huge concessions of land of innumerable palm trees. Now, let's be very clear. The Belgian government was so, so, so terrible in the Congo. They would strip the trees for rubber, and the African slaves in the Congo who were stripping the trees, if they didn't work hard enough, they would cut out their fingers and hands and limbs to the point that... I forget the English photographer's name, but one of the men went to an English photographer so she could take pictures. And this was the first, like, exposing of things with pictures long before Vietnam. And she brought them back. And that brought a lot of social pressure against Belgium for what they were doing. And that was was the first big turn uh, for photography in in any kind of, you know, humanitarian form. Belgium! Um, Belgium Not just for their waffles, yeah. also for their fucking they human rights They were awful, abuses. awful imperialists in Central Africa. Let's not kid ourselves. And they were just handing out palm trees. They didn't need them. There's no rubber coming from There's palm There's no trees. rubber coming There's, from palm trees. They're the trees. wrong damn trees. They're the silly trees. Lever obtained the necessary concessions in the Congo and brought them in machinery to extract oil from palm kernels. 
But the main palm oil experts, yeah, my turn, came from the areas on the coast to the north of the Congo. Therefore, in 1910, Lever purchased W.B. McIver, a small Liverpool firm in Nigeria. Because you know what small Liverpool boys do, they go to Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Um, That was followed by acquisitions of two small companies in Sierra Leone, a place that's never had anything go wrong, and Liberia. Indeed, Lever, at that time called Lever Bros., it can't be the way it's supposed to be said, but I'm sticking with it. Got a foothold in every colony in West Africa. The first major breakthrough occurred when Lever bought the Niger Company in 1920 for eight million pounds. Then in 1929, the African and Eastern, the last big rival trading concern, was brought into partnership. Again, you don't outcompete your competition; you just absorb them. That's mm-hmm. that's the, that, this is imperialism 101. This is exactly what London was talking about. And the result of the merger was called the United Africa Company. During the 1914-18 war, also known as World War I, Lever had begun making margarine. Interesting. What? Now, now, now we're going to stop right there, because you all have to suffer the same way I suffered. What the fuck does soap and margarine have to do with one another? That seems silly. Those seem like, like I'm going to butter my bread and also clean my pits. I don't know why the two... Must meet. It seems unnecessary. It seems like they're not benefiting. No, no, no. They require the same raw materials, namely oils and fats. Ah, all right, all right, cool. The subsequent years were ones in which such enterprises in Europe were constantly getting bigger through takeovers and mergers. Lennon had pointed that out. The big names in soap and margarine manufacture on the European continent were two Dutch firms, Jurgens and Vanderberg. You probably know that first one. You probably also know they're owned by Lever at this point under the Unilever brand. Come on, people. And the Austrian firms have shaked, hey, they're back, and Centra. The Dutch companies first achieved a dominant position, and then in 1929, there was a grand merger between their combine and Levers, who in the meantime had been busy buying off virtually all other competitors. The 1929 merger created Unilever as a single monopoly, divided for the sake of convenience into Unilever Limited, registered in Britain, and Unilever NV registered in Holland. For its massive input of oils and fats, Unilever depended largely on its UAC subsidiary, which was formed that very year. The UAC itself never stopped growing. In 1933, it took over the important trading firm of GB Oliphant, and in 1936, it bought the Swiss trading company on the Gold Coast. By that time, it was not relying simply on wild palms in the Congo, but had organized plantations. A word that doesn't have any weird baggage. Yeah, no, definitely not a problem with plantations. Not in Africa, nope. The lever faces in the USA drew their oil supplies mainly from the Congo. And in 1925, even before Unilever and the UAC emerged as such, the lever works in Boston showed a profit of 250,000 pounds. Mm. Mm. I'm I'm done talking. Your turn. Okay, well, uh, Unilever flourished in war and in peace. Huh, kind of like monopolies do. Only in Eastern Europe did the advent of socialism lead to the loss of factories through nationalization. Hmm. It's almost like war and and other geopolitical things don't make a difference to capital, but socialism is the fucking thing that will will hurt it. Weird, weird. By the end of the colonial colonial period, Unilever was a world force, selling traditional soaps, detergents, margarine, lard, ghee, 
cooking oil, canned food, candles, glycerin, oil cake, whatever the fuck that is, and toilet preparations such as toothpaste. I've also never heard toothpaste called a toilet preparation, and that that can I don't. I've heard it called a toiletry. Maybe that's short. Maybe all right, all right. I give him the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah, okay. From where did this giant octopus <laughs> suck most of its sustenance? All right, Marx has the vampires and the werewolves. <laughs> Doctor Rodney's got a giant octopus. Giant fucking octopus. <laughs> Let the answer be provided by the Information Division of Unilever House London. This is from Unilever themselves, by the way. Uh, most striking of all the post-war development of Unilever had been the progress of United Africa Company. In the worst of the Depression, the management of Unilever had never ceased low or it's two to put money into UAC, justifying their action more by general faith in the future of Africa than by particular considerations of UA, UAC's immediate prospects. Hmm. Their reward has come with post war prosperity of the primary producer, which has made Africa a market of all kinds of goods, from frozen peas to motor cars. Unilever's center of gravity lies in Europe, but far and away, its largest member, the UAC, is almost wholly dependent for its livelihood, represented by a turnover of 300 million pounds. And mind you, this was in 1929. Yeah, a lot. On the well-being of West Africa. So, again, and this is something that is marked of of monopolies and of, mm-hmm. of imperialism in general is this con- this idea that there is no bad time for no. a monopoly ever. They're, you're talking about during the Depression. and the worst of the Depression, they never ceased to put money into UAC. It, it was because they knew, one, it wouldn't impact them. They could keep going. They had the capital to do it. And two, if they just rode that out till the end, they would get to reap all the benefits. They would never lose. Mm-hmm. They would never come out on the wrong end of that deal and so they just kept doing it. They mm-hmm. had this massive capital that no one else could have afforded to lose at that time. There's a reason Coke was killing people in Colombia with death squads in the 90s in the booming economy because things were going great and they just needed to control the workers. And we're killing people in Africa in the 2009s and 2010s because things were going terribly, but they just needed to control the workers. To be clear, like, we're talking about Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, not cocaine or the Coke brothers. Yeah, no. <laughs> All of which are awful in their own way, but we are talking We're about talking the about one with the fun polar bear and Santa right but now. Yeah, I mean, the actions don't change. The success, the success doesn't change. It's just about, you know, when things are going well, you're growing your business. When things are going poorly, you're clubbing your riles to death and sucking them up and growing your business that way. You know, it, it's there's no, no worry about profit margin. It's just about singularity. How centralized can you be? It goes from what Marx described as a phenomenon of central centralization to a pursuit of centralization, which yep. is exactly why Lenin says this is a new stage, a new yep. epoch. And it's why you need to build, it's why Marxism has this fun little thing that builds on itself, because again, and and they talk about this in the work that we just did, but are really is coming out to you next week when we're talking about Mao, yeah. Mao talked about that, that, that Marx couldn't have foreseen what the, the material conditions of imperialism were because he didn't li- he was living in a laissez-faire capitalism an entirely different system yeah. he needed Lenin had everything from Marx and then was able to look at this and go oh shit there's that and then again we go 50 years from from Lenin you have Dr. Rodney writing this and again just reflecting on the exact same kind of things exact mm-hmm. same kind of situations and how they keep perpetuating themselves you you, you it, the the theory all stays the same 
it's just the players kind of change up and they, they, they change how they act a little bit. Absolutely. So back to Dr. Rodney. In some instances, Lever's African enterprises made losses in the strict cost accounting sense. It took years before the Congo plantations paid for themselves and made a profit. It also took some time before the purchase of the Niger Company in 1920 was financially justified. While the SCKN in Chad never showed worthwhile monetary profits. But even in the worst financial years, the subsidiaries comp- comprising the UAC were invaluable assets and that they allowed the manufacturing side of Unilever to have control over a guaranteed source of essential raw materials. Of course, the UAC itself provided handsome monetary dividends, but is the purpose here to draw attention not to the financial gains of the UAC and Unilever, but the way that the exploitation of Africa led to multiple technical and organizational developments in Europe? So again... They, you need to advance forward. You need to jump your capital mm-hmm. forward. You need to find that new advancement that, that gets you where you want to go. This is this is exactly what Lenin was talking about under the sense of this is what imp- eventually you have to get outside of your own your own country to do that. You have to find some other means of pumping in the raw material. And again, that's what Unilever found in Africa. They found a whole source of their raw materials so they didn't have to worry about getting their raw materials domestically. They could invest in other things. They could look at other stuff domestically. And then you get your technological and your scientific advancements that, that move your company forward and you look like a genius. Absolutely. Both the soap industry and the margin in margarine industry had their own scientific and technical problems which had to be solved. Scientific advance is most generally response to real need. Oils for margarine and for cooking purposes had to be deodorized. Substitutes had to be sought for natural lard and when margarine was faced with competition from cheap butter, the necessity arose to find means of producing new high-grade margarine with added vitamins. In 1916, two lever experts published in a British scientific journal the results of tests showing the growth of animals fed with vitamin concentrates inside margarine. They kept in touch with Cambridge University scientists who pursued the problem, and by 1927, the vitamin-rich margarine was ready for human consumption. With regard to soap and lesser extent margarine, it was essential to devise a process for hardening oils into fats, notably whale oil, but also vegetable oils. This process referred to as hydrogenation. Yeah, that ended well. Yeah, That didn't cause any issues with humanity. Nope. No issues with hydrogenated fats. Nope. <laughs> Attracted the attention of scientists in the early years of this century. They were paid and urged on on by rivaled soap companies, including Lever and other European firms, which had later merged to form Unilever. One of the most striking illustrations of the technological ramifications of the processing of colonial raw materials is the field of detergents. Soap itself is a detergent or a washing agent, but ordinary soaps suffer from several limitations, such as the tendency to decompose in hard water and in acids. And the tendency to slip out of your hands when you're trying to use it in the shower. Whoa, no, no, it's gone. Oh, it's so slippery. Yes, you need ropes. We need ropes. Uh, Those limitations could only be overcome by soapless detergents. Or that. Without the kind of fatty base of previous soaps. When Germany was cut off from colonial supplies of oils and fats in the First Imperialist War, World War One. Dr. Rodney comes up with a lot of fun ways to say World War One without saying the words World War or One. Yeah, well, I mean, think from his perspective, right? He's he's from Guyana. Did it feel like a very World Warry thing to him? Yeah. Yeah. So. Eh. German scientists were spurred onto the first. He also experience. wasn't alive during it, so I mean, he doesn't, I he doesn't really have a okay. feel for it one way or another. Okay. German scientists were spurred into the first experiments oh, of producing detergents out of coal tar. Okay, whoop. That's the best thing German scientists have ever been a part of, guys. That, that got scary for a second there. 
Later on in the 1930s, chemical companies began making similar detergents on a larger scale, especially in the USA. Two of the firms which immediately stepped in the detergent research were Unilever and Procter & Gamble. The only two people that make soap at all. A soap ever. combined with the headquarters in Cincinnati. It may at first appear strange that the thought that though detergents were competitors to ordinary soap, they were nevertheless promoted by soap firms. However, it is the practice of monopoly concerns to move into new fields which supplement or even replace their old businesses that is necessary to avoid their entire capital from being tied up in products that go out of fashion. It's weird how Walmart suddenly is worried about delivery services and da, 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 yep. centralization, concentration, all of these concepts that we, that mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're this far in and you've listened to all of them, you're like, yeah, duh, of course they do. Yeah, of course, that's how capital works. Mm-hmm. The soap firms could not leave detergents to chemical firms or else their own hard soap, soap flakes, and soap powder would have suffered, and they would have not been the ones with the new brands on the markets. So great effort was put into the chemistry of detergents by Unilever, retaining to a considerable extent the vegetable oils, but modifying them chemically. That kind of research was not left to chance or to private individuals. By 1960, Unilever had four main laboratories, two in England, one in Holland, and one in the USA. These four together, with other small research units, employed over 3,000 people, of whom about one-third were qualified scientists and technologists. I'm assuming that meant the other two-thirds were unqualified scientists and technologists? I I just imagine rogue scientists doing weird (laughs) backyard science. Hey, buddy, light this on fire and see what happens. It feels a lot like that. Uh, The multiplier effects radiating from Unilever and its colonial exploitation can be traced with some accuracy. When palm kernels were crushed, the revenue formed a cake, which was excellent for livestock. So I think that's where your oil cake comes from. Mm, I think that was just a concentrated fat to feed, you know, cows. Uh, One byproduct of the soap industry was glycerin, which was utilized in the making of explosives. Europeans killed themselves with some of the explosives, but some went into peaceful purposes, such as mining, quarrying, and construction. Several other products were linked to soap through the common base in oils and fats, notably cosmetics, shampoos, perfumes, shaving creams, toothpastes, and dyes. Again, look at all that you think I make my butter, and I also make my shaving cream. No, you don't, but capitalists do. They definitely do. Mm-hmm. As one writer put it, those byproducts serve to be broaden, serve to broaden the commercial pace on which Unilever le- rested, while making further use of the fund of knowledge already possessed by the oil and fats technologist. Again, expanding. You take your already. Ex- I already know all this. How to do all this stuff. Oh, I can make these eight other products with it. Sweet. Now, if one area of my business turns down, I am buoyed by my other nine areas of my business. You can never properly get at me because I'm everywhere. Um, yeah. Besides these operations, we're creating hundreds of thousands of additional jobs for European workers. And nobody cares what you're doing if you're creating jobs. You're a job creator. <laughs> job creator. The manufacturing of soap and margarine required raw material inputs other than oils and fats. Soap making consumed large quantities of caustic soda, so that in 1911, Lever bought land in Cheshire suitable for the manufacture of that alkali. I'm going to go buy this place to make the one thing I need to do the one thing. That's the level they're at. Yeah, I mean, I want that place. I'm just going to buy it. Just the whole damn yeah, thing. The whole thing. I want the amu- I want to ride that roller coaster. I'm buying the amusement park. Capitalist giants nourished by colonialism and imperialism could afford to do things in a big way. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's like a, my big fat Greek wedding only just for, for buying places. It's, it's not good. When Lever needed abrasives, the company bought a limestone mine in Bohemia, as you do. When Unilever wanted to assure themselves of supplies of wrapping paper, they bought a paper mill. 
Transport was another key problem which stimulated growth at the European end. Within a month of buying the Niger Company in 1920, Lever was engaged in, pro in a project for constructing facilities on the Marseille to gain receive ocean-going shipments, bringing cargoes from West Africa. The UAC was a pioneer in getting ships constructed to carry palm oil in bulk tanks, and Vanderburg considered buying a shipyard to build ships for his company some years before the merger. This did not materialize, but Unilever did acquire several ships of their own, including vessels fresh from the shipyards and made to their specifications. Brand spanking new, baby! And full of cocaine, J.P. Morgan. <laughs> just uh, like, yeah, just like J.P. Morgan. <laughs> the news, the new, the other news that just vanished, just like the whole, uh, was it Panama Papers just went up in midair. Epstein is probably not going to make as much news as, as we think he should. You know, the fact that, like, uh, Steven Pinker has been linked there, that's going to vanish into nothing. But the thing that really vanished this last week was J.P. Morgan is clearly running a cocaine ring and gets caught with a ship and... Bam. Just gone under the news. Just just as fast as a flash. I'm also just trying to figure out how J.P. Morgan has a big, giant shipping boat. Like, what part of your business, J.P. and or Morgan, They're requires a big boat? Every goddamn thing. It's fine. I'm, I'm just Morgan. saying. It's concerning. Another linkage of the Unilever Industries was that with retail distribution, hmm, yeah, their products weird. had to be sold to the housewife. That seems weird. <laughs> and the Dutch firms that went into Unilever decided they should own grocery stores to guarantee sales. By 1922, Jurgens had control of a chain of grocery stores in England appropriately named Home and Colonial. Because no one knows irony like imperialists. That's right. Vanderburg, at the time, a rival, was not to be left behind. So he secured majority shares in the chain store owned by Lipton of Lipton's Tea Fame. You know that one. All of these shops passed to Unilever, because, spoiler alert, every single one of those is now Unilever. Yeah. The grocery store business soon ceased being considered merely as an outlet for soap and margarine and became an end unto itself. Sometimes the multiplier effects do not seem connected. On the surface, there was no apparent reason why Lever should set up a huge retail chain called Mac Fisheries to sell fish. There is little in common between soap, sausages, and ice cream. But Lever bought Walls, a sausage firm, and later Walls opened an ice cream manufacturing plant. The underlying connection is that capital seeks domination. It grows and spreads and seeks to get hold of everything in sight. The exploitation of Africa gave European monopoly capital full opportunities to indulge in its tendencies for expansion and domination. Before leaving Unilever, should be noted in conclusion how a company such as that pointed the way towards change in the capitalist system. The device of the dual structure of Unilever Limited and Unilever ND was an innovation first unilized when Schick and Centra of Central Europe merged with the Dutch fir margarine firms of Jurgens and Vanderburg. It's just weird to me to think of Jurgens, who I only think of as lotion, as yeah. a butter manufacturer, and then to think of what is that lotion made of? <laughs> Why are you buttering me? Butter Jordan? oil, butter oil, butter man. They're fattening us up. They're doing <laughs> From the outside in. Unilever comprised two holding companies with the same governing boards and arrangements to transfer and equalize profits. It was a professional company from its inception. Again, a professional company that I think now is owned by another holding company, because of course yeah. it is. All of the firms involved in the merger had years of experience in rationalizing staff, production plans, and marketing procedures. Schicht was one of the earliest to work out a system of cost accounting and financial control. Lieber had himself been a pioneer of mass advertising in Europe and in the competitive field of the USA. 
The firm Unilever inherited and perfected the techniques of mass production and advertising so as to achieve mass consumption. The significance of the organizational changes are best seen on a long-term basis. Again, something that's been fun for this whole endeavor, starting with Marx, going here to Dr. Rodney. What is that, A almost a 250-year gap, basically? Yeah, pretty, pretty big one. I mean... Uh, 1972 and Marx was 18... 1860s uh, is when the 1860s, when yeah. capital dropped. I want to yeah. say, yeah, so um, that's so hundred something. Hundred. I mean, yeah. So uh, again, long term. Mm -hmm. Take the take the broad look of history. Don't look at the micro. Look at look at big scale. How does this stuff evolve? Mm -hmm. um, Unilever's sophisticated international organization with the chartered companies of the 16th and 17th centuries had difficulties managing accounts. The efficient accounting and business methods, which are supposed to characterize capitalist firms, did not drop from the sky. They are a result of historical evolution. And in that evolution, the exploitation of Africa played a key role from the era of the chartered companies right through the colonial period. That, that was solid it was. was concise, and that was very clear to what we were talking about. Uh, it was kind of funny because what we were talking about, and it brought up Lipton, uh, a Lipton competitor, Snapple. I decided uh, to, Jesus, to drink to today. Patronize. Don't. And we we brought that up, and what was it? A party? Oh, all right. Yeah. Now I gotta go. Doctor Pepper. It's it's it's. And then it was G. So Keurig Doctor Pep Keurig Doctor Pepper owns Snapple. Yeah. Um, uh, Keurig Ginger Pepper. Is is owned by another holding company, mm -hmm. and that holding company is Jab Holding Company. Because why wouldn't it be? Now, so again, Snapple owned by Dr Pepper and Keurig, owned by Jab, who owns and and I'm I'm just I'm just doing like some of them right now. I'm not even doing all of them. So they've got Panera Bread Company, like you do. Um, they've got Dunkin' Donuts, Cody, no, not Dunkin' Donuts, sorry, it's Krispy Kreme, uh, Paradise Bakery and Cafe, uh, Caribou Coffee, Mighty Leaf Tea, Pete's Coffee, <coughs> uh, Pret Amandageur, um, and like 18 other major companies that also, again, every one of these big companies, imagine all the, so again, Keurig Dr. Pepper has Snapple and all their other stuff, every subsidiary under that, all owned by one giant holding company, mm. a giant holding company! That has seven employees. Yeah. It was founded in 1828. It is still owned by the same family. Don't fucking tell me that capital is not, like, systemically built into the fucking system. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just goddamn absurd. And, of course, we see today, you know, the effects on things, right? I mean, it, look, all of these... these Farms and and coconut and and palm oil trees and everything and look how big of a deal just the land distribution. There's a big controversy with land distribution in South Africa now, where all the white supremacists have gone there and oh my god, my white farmers are losing the land to the black races. You know because it's a majority black country that's still it, it's had a socialist revolution, but just like you know the Kulaks didn't immediately give up their land in the USSR. <laughs> no, they it, burned it. Yeah, it, it takes some time. You got to pull that land back from them, and the ANC is finally going to to take the land back from the white farmers. Well, that was happening uh, a year and a half ago in Zimbabwe, and it's, it was getting so intense that uh, Mugabe's vice president was, you know, essentially 
barreling towards a coup. And so Mugabe fired him to, to not be cooed and to give this land distribution back. And he was characterized in Western media as, oh my God, this horrible dictator doing this power grab. And da, 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 Authoritarian. Da. Authoritarian. And, and like, I don't care what nuanced critiques you think you have of Mugabe. They were lying about him because he was giving land back to the people that lived there. And he was protecting himself from a coup in order to finish giving land back. And so they cooed him and the immediate feelings afterward were, oh, hey, the white farmers got their land back. We're open for business. Uh, good good resource on, on this from when it was happening, by the way, is Net for Freeman. And, of course, you know, I mean, it, they can't solve problems now. Now they're having a drought and they have no infrastructure to deal with it. It's it's a big old mess, you yeah. know. And China's again trying, I think China's stepping in, trying to do some... Yeah, loans in that space to try and some, alleviate some, that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, infrastructure to, to build dams and stuff to help them out of it because they haven't been able to help themselves. Yeah. Um, and, and also the other thing is they were doing the Chilean, Venezuelan, like, oh, my God, inflation because the U.S. was choking out the economy sanctions and, and manipulation of the dollar and things like that. And then weirdly they get this liberal, you know, roll in and 18 months later they haven't solved the inflation. No. It's you know. still there, and it's just it's it's still yeah. There. But I mean, it's it's all okay because we're we're all gonna eat maggots and do backflips, and it's all cool, you know. More importantly, the thing that unfortunately Dr. Rodney was not able to ever see to its fruition mm-hmm. was Unilever's Unilever lever whatever's greatest sin, um, and that was the fact that they are the parent company of Axe body spray, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's all I have. That's, if that's not enough to, to burn your brand to the ground, I don't know what is. I don't know what other thing you were expecting. You looked at me like you wanted more, and no, they own Axe Body Spray, David. They're, they are the grand Satan. That is all you should need from me. That's all any of you need from me. Um, Axe Dove Hellman's Nor Lipton Magnum Chocolates Talenti, that weird, like, looks fancy gelato that you see. Tresemme, ooh la la. Uh, Vaseline, Ben and Jerry's, Briars, Caress, uh, Clear Degree, Klondike, Lever 2000, Nexus, New York Salon Care, uh, and and this weird, like, I think it's, I think it's, oh, there's more, Noxzema, Popsicle, Q-Tip, Simple, St. Ives, Suave. Uh, yeah, and you notice how many like soap conglomerates there are. You're like, I'll just buy a competitive brand. No. And it's Unilever. Too. It's all there's fucking no Unilever. escape. And it's, if it's not, it's, it's like Procter and Gamble, and they're no fucking better. Yeah, I just. Uh, but we have so uh, many choices under capitalism. It spurs innovation. <laughs> Fuck. So, ladies and gentlemen. Fuck. This, this has been imperialism. This. This has finally yes. That we are. Yes. We are done with imperialism. We have we have investigated uh, anything from a monopoly to bank trust, uh, ultra imperialism, mecha imperialism, mecha imperialism. Uh, you know, I think I, Mothra came in at some point. I got I got confused. <laughs> uh, we have talked about uh, the opportunists in the uh, coupon clipping class. <laughs> If you will. Oh, um, so depressed. I'll talk to you about yes, that. Yes, uh, we've got a hard, hard, um, concrete example in Unilever, which was very, very well laid out by uh, Dr. Rodney. Yes. And for your application today, um, obviously, you know, that means fighting back against imperialism, fighting back against lies, understanding that even if a country is not being gone to war with, with America, um, that they can be being attacked for a damn conglomerate to, to take their resources, yeah. you know. Uh, in the meantime, obviously support proletarian struggles. Woohoo, it's been 40 years for Nicaragua. Yay! Yeah! Uh, 
Uh, there's been some uprisings in Haiti and Honduras uh, to get their stuff back after uh, 10 and 15 years of uh, U.S. coup rule, respectively. Um, there's been some great fights by indigenous people in Ecuador uh, to reduce or stop the attacks by oil drilling at the very tip of the Amazon. Thank God for those indigenous groups and what they're doing. Uh, that said, unfortunately, there may also be oil drilling going on in the Galapagos anyway. Yeah! The um, f***ing turtles. There are uh, protests going on. Uh, the uh, I believe it's Mauna Kea is how you pronounce the protest uh, yeah. going on in uh, Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Um, I was there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we need to support those. We need to fight, the, of course, the concentration camps going on along our border. Yeah. Uh, the recent Great Return March uh, that happens every yeah. year for Palestinians. Don't forget about them. Um, so, I mean, let's support this. Let's let's fight back against this nonsense. Uh, we're going to fight the capitalists, the conglomerates. But they're all the same rulers, and yes. we have to take them down together. Yes. And mm-hmm. we, we have to have to do our part. That means debunking lies. That means supporting existing socialism. Yes. That means actual action, as you will get uh, next week from us when we're talking <laughs> about practice. Yeah, baby. Uh, and, and that means, you know, realizing that we're all in this struggle together. And you can't just say, oh, hey, let's raise to a $15 minimum wage in the United States. Screw the, the, the people in Africa and South America having yeah. their resources sucked. You know, if they are not liberated none of us are nope and we have to fight this together um so that was a great book a great work until next time and so hey oh Oh, don't you try i saw what you did there no we're gonna formalize the ending more okay no so again this is the end of this book uh next week we are not starting our next book next week is a fun interlude uh, episode for everybody. Next week is us and uh, the the Red Menace crew, Brett and Allison. Um, Brett also of uh, Rev Left Notoriety um, doing On Practice by Mao. And uh, I think probably this week or, or very soon before the On Practice episode, they'll be releasing their episode on on Crunch on, on, there's a lot of ons in here. Thank you, Matt. On Contradiction. Um, and that's also, I would highly recommend listening to that in conjunction with the on practice because just Mao, everything on Mao builds so well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that means, so that's the, so this, you're hearing this on the 24th of July. On the 31st of July, 2019, you'll be hearing uh, us do our fun, fun collabo. On August 7th, it'll be the day after my birthday. So I'll, I won't be doing anything. I'm, I'm in my 30s. I don't give a shit at this point. It's meaningless. But on August 7th, we're going to be starting uh, Wretched of the Earth by Fanon. Yes. Um, and this is the last call for anyone that wants to come on that intro episode and help give us some fucking context for the Pan-Africanists. Yes. Uh, please, God. Please come. Please help. Um, hopefully, hopefully you've gotten here. Uh, and if not, we're going to do our damn best. And if not, you know... When we when we inevitably fuck up, Rain, I, I trust you'll be there on the trigger to let us know, please. Because, <laughs> yeah, we're going to. But that being said, 